0: This is Lekker. I'm Lucy Diller. This month on the Lekker Book Club, Ramen Forever by Tim Anderson. Ramen has ended up as a kind of cornerstone of Tim Anderson's life. As he writes in the book Ramen Forever, it was originally his love of ramen that took him to live in Japan, which steered the course of his future in many ways, including that he met his wife there. Avid food TV watchers in the UK may also remember that Ramen was at the heart of his MasterChef story when Tim won the series in 2011. Ramen was his winning main course in the final. He also previously ran a ramen restaurant in Brixton, which was called Nanban, opening in 2015 and it closed in 2021. But although he's now got five cookbooks already to his name, he's never written a book entirely about ramen before until now.
1: There's a Mickey Mantle quote I read recently where I think he said something like, it's amazing to realize how little you know about the game you've been playing your whole life. Something like that. And and I really felt that writing the ramen book.
0: I found this such an interesting conversation, not just about ramen, but also about the nature of cookbook writing and power dynamics within publishing tim spoke about his work and his approach to it with an honesty that i think is really generous and i feel like i really got an insight in what it takes to write recipes for a living in the way that he does including that feeling that you might not have got something completely right when it goes off to print or that someone else might have been better placed to write something that you agreed to i'm really grateful to tim for this because it made what i knew would be an interesting conversation anyway even more enjoyable and i hope that you get a lot out of it too And if nothing else, you'll be tempted to make that leftover Nando's ramen. I began by asking Tim about something that he opens ramen forever with. What ramen is, but also what it isn't.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a big question. I mean, on the one hand, the answer is very simple. Because ramen is like, when you boil it down, no pun intended, (laughs) it becomes a very simple thing, and that is alkaline wheat noodles in broth. I used to also sort of add a a caveat to that, which is that it had to be a meat broth, just because that's what it sort of always traditionally has been. And that's what sets it apart, uh, especially from other kinds of traditional Japanese noodle soups, one of the things anyway. But, you know, nowadays it's all expanded to include all kinds of fish broths and and vegetarian and vegan versions as well. So I don't think that's part of it, but that is sort of one of the historically defining features of it. But it's the alkaline wheat noodles, the wheat noodles that have kansui, potassium carbonate and sodium carbonate in them that really makes ramen ramen and distinct from other kinds of noodles. And this is, yeah, ramen, the word as it's used in uh, Britain and I think English-speaking countries generally people take it to mean sort of any sort of noodle soup, I think any kind of Asian noodle soup, which isn't true, obviously. Um, Ramen is a particular kind of noodle soup from a particular place, and other kinds of noodle soups are other kind of particular noodle soups. So you see kind of absurd things in shops and on on high street chains, like ramen udon or laksa ramen, and it's like... (laughs) Ramen udon is like saying spaghetti gnocchi or, you know, it it just makes absolutely no sense if you know what these words mean. If I have one thing that I want people to sort of take away from the book, it, it is actually just that. It's that ramen is ramen and ramen has to have alkaline salts in it, kansui, or it isn't ramen. And for me with ramen... There is something special and unique about the texture that you get in the noodles that does come from Kansui. So it's not just a matter of me being pedantic. It is like sort of, you know, ramen for me and a lot of people is a special thing, and that's what makes it special, or that's one of the things that makes it special. Now, having said that, <laughs> there are other types of noodles in Chinese traditions that do use Kansui and are basically the same dish. But I think you also have to respect those dishes and not call them ramen, even though they sort of technically fit the definition, like wonton noodle soup. Because I don't know enough about Chinese food culture to come up with a lot of examples. But wonton noodle soup is one that I know uses alkaline wheat noodles in a meat broth. You could say, oh, it's ramen. But really, I think when you do that... You're also sort of showing your hand as somebody who's not that familiar with that particular dish. And you would never sort of conflate the two if you did know the difference. But, you know, also this definition is a little bit sort of unsatisfying because ramen has other elements beyond the noodles and the broth. And that's the toppings, the oils um, and the tare, the seasoning. And all these things are important in sort of determining what is ramen and and um, complicating it. And all these things have to be taken into consideration when you discuss sort of regional variations and sort of new modern variations, which are also like have to be understood as as part of the definition of ramen. It's not just wheat noodles and broth or, or alkaline wheat noodles and broth. It is all of the variations that you get from that starting point as well. So it's simple, but it's also complicated, <laughs> basically.
0: Yeah, it's a big question to start with. Yes, yeah, so, sorry. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's very interesting. And from what I understand and from what you write in the book, ramen is a big part of your life. It's a big part of your kind of personal, I guess, like story around food. How is it important to you? Can you remember the first time you ate it?
1: I can't really remember the first time I ate it because I think for like a lot of people, the first time I ate it was would have been in, in its instant form. Growing up, we always had packets of maruchan or, or Sapporo Ichiban in the cupboard. They were just sort of like part of the fabric of Midwestern American food. Like everybody I knew ate instant ramen. They cost maybe 10 cents a pack back then. <laughs> like they were incredibly cheap. They're one of the first things you learn to cook when you can't cook like as a teenager. So that would have been my first basic introduction to ramen. And also I, I want to say like there may be people thinking, oh, that's not really ramen, but I think it is. I think you can't dismiss instant ramen. It's like a huge part of the of ramen culture as well. And a huge part of what sort of made it popular around the world, like introducing people to the dish in that format and getting them on board with the whole concept of like long noodles and broth, like that's important. So that would have been the first time And I grew up eating those. Uh, And then when I went to college, uh, I went to college in Los Angeles, and that was partly because I was already interested in Japanese food and I knew that there was a lot more to learn about there because of the Japanese diaspora population, and it's just much more established and diverse. So I started eating ramen in, in shops like in Little Tokyo in LA um, and on Sawtelle Boulevard, um, stuff like that. And I, it didn't really like hit me. Like I had a lot of sort of what I would now, I guess, I, I might sort of realize were just sort of, <laughs> this sounds mean, but they were just sort of like nothing special kinds of bowls. So I, I, they didn't really have much of an impact on me. But then there was a a, a night where I was out in little Tokyo with a group of friends and there were sort of too many of us. and We hadn't booked anywhere to eat. and We couldn't get anywhere. And there was this restaurant that we finally stumbled across called uh, Daikokuya, which is still there and very popular now. We would never have been able to get in there now. Um, (laughs) But they took us all in. There were like seven of us. It was ridiculous. We sat at the counter and it was my first bowl of tonkotsu ramen. And I'd never had anything like it before. It was, you know, most of the ramen I'd had had, like a could of a thinner broth a shio or a shoyu kind of old school tokyo style broth and this one was rich and porky and fatty and it was just mesmerizing because it was about the broth but it was also about the noodles i think it was probably the first time i, I recognized that the noodles themselves were something special yeah. and then it had all this contrast as you eat it because you get the pork belly the chashu that sort of flakes apart falls apart and and you slurp that up and then you get a bit of pickled ginger, some spring onions, a bit of crunchy bean sprout. And it's just this sort of like really involving bowl of food. <laughs> um, and that was sort of my ramen moment. That was that was really what kicked it off. And it really did kick it off. Like I I went to Daikokuya probably on average every other week for it would have <laughs> been two or three years until the time I left L.A. We were regulars there, me and my friends or my girlfriend and and. um they only really served one thing. So that's how, that's how good it was. It just kind of kept me coming back just for that one particular thing. But, you know, during this time, I also went to, I, I, I applied for a research grant in 2005 or uh, 2004, something like that, to go and study noodles. because so I was already studying Japanese history and culture. I majored in Japanese studies. And um, I, I put this pitch together, sort of studying the history of the different kind of noodle cultures in Japan. So about udon ramen and and the differences between them and and why they were established where they were, but anyway, I wound up focusing most of my research on the Shin Yokohama Ramen Museum, and and that trip was also like just this massive education in terms of how significant, how big the dish is, both in terms of sort of its its cultural impact and how how much of a sort of a nostalgic food it is for people in Japan, but also how really, really regional and diverse it is and how you could live a whole you know, a lifetime eating ramen every day and, and not ever reach the end of it, basically.
0: What I'm really curious about is that it's obviously such an important dish to you. Well, you know, like, I, I guess dish is maybe diminishing it slightly. Um, <laughs> but this is your this is your sixth book?
1: Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah, something and like that. Add, why did it take you so long to write a book about ramen?
1: The publishers are running out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Not really obviously.
0: Like finally you can do it Tim You can do the ramen book
1: <laughs> The funny thing is um, That's a great question So my, my very first book Nanban is about The food of Kyushu And a little bit of Okinawa With some of my own Sort of takes on that type of food And what I, what I had been serving At pop-ups in London at the time And there's a big chapter on ramen, but it's really quite basic, like uh, at the time I thought, oh, I'm publishing these recipes that are, you know, they're going to be great because it's going to showcase a little bit about the diversity of at least within Kyushu and the different styles there, champon and and kumamoto ramen and things like these, um, which are still some of my favorites. But really, like the, the the recipes are too basic in that book. They they weren't that well researched. They, there's not a lot of information on the, almost no variation actually. Information on the variation in terms of tare and noodles in them. Um, it's a bit mm-hmm. too simplistic. It's a bit too uh, too much of an overview, I guess. So it, it's not like I was sort of itching to do another ramen book for a long time. But this this was a good opportunity to really dive deeper. There's less of the regional variations, but more in terms of a sort of nuts and bolts understanding Mm. of how those variations are made, basically, uh, in each element within them. But getting into the sort of, you know, why now side of it, to answer that question, is doing these books has always been a, a collaboration, I guess you could say, between me and the publisher and, you know, They have mostly, to be honest, been ideas that have come from my publisher. And they said, we want to do this. Can you do it? And I've said, Mm. OK, or no. (laughs) Um, But with ramen, it it felt like something I could do. But it was daunting still. It was because it is such a huge topic. And, And it's one of these things where it's like there's a Mickey Mantle quote I read recently where I think he said something like, it's amazing to realize how little you know about the game you've been playing your whole life. Something like that. And and I really felt that writing the ramen book. On the one hand, as I was testing recipes, I was like, Oh good, these recipes are working. And it's like, well, yeah, of course they are. I've been making ramen for a long time. (laughs) But on the other hand, I was like, man, but I can't, you know, there's still so much I don't know. And there's so much that I I can't fit in the book. And it's like, I don't know, I've I've done my best to um, say what I think I guess is important about ramen but try to encourage people to do their own re- extended research i guess which people do anyway they don't need me to tell
0: them that uh, yeah very true i feel like it's something that people have very strong opinions about so mm. that must have been quite a, a daunting task in some ways
1: it is it is scary there is a, a very big sort of ramen nerd community um out there on the on the internet and I, I use the word nerd mostly affectionately <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, with some caveats <laughs> yeah because I am one of them anyway but yeah so far the response from that community from you know people I I follow and chat to on Instagram and stuff has been really positive but I'm not going to go hunting around Reddit or whatever for comments about <laughs> where my book has fallen short or got it wrong or whatever like you know things like that because yeah it, I, I don't know what it is about ramen but it seems to really get a lot of people very passionate and I, that's the thing, I didn't, I didn't want to let them down, I guess, more than anything.
0: Yeah, that's, that's funny, actually. I was going to ask you what you think it is about ramen in particular that does inspire this kind of cult-like devotion. But um, I guess it's one of life's great mysteries.
1: I think about this all the time, to be honest. And so I, I think for one thing, there is an undeniable sort of impact of this dish. Even at its sort of most soothing and subtle, it's still like, a large portion of salty food with a filling amount of noodles in it and broth. And it's got, you know, bags of umami and and all this contrast, like like you get from so many different kinds of foods that also inspire a similar kind of nerdy devotion like burgers or pizza. You know, these are similar foods that you can really fiddle with and, and tinker with. But I also think that there is something... You know, I don't want to get too, I don't know, ethnographic or something, but there is a certain kind of person who is attracted to ramen and to making it that, and I I put myself in this category that I think is a a kind of a control freak kind of personality. (laughs) Um, People who really like to sort of like dial in specificities of a recipe and a process because... Ramen isn't something that's technically hard to make. You don't need like good knife skills. You know, I look at people who make sushi and I watch their hands and I'm just like, it's like a magic trick to me. It's so amazing. Ramen is boiling stuff. It's <laughs> it's it's really like, if you have a head for sort of math and processes, um, good ramen is achievable. Um, it is much less about, I think, technique than it is about numbers in a way. And I think that attracts a certain mm. kind of person. And I am I am sort of in that camp. I, I, I am a kind of numbers guy, but I am also a pinch of this, a pinch of that guy. And there's room for that in ramen as well. Like from bowl to bowl, you're always tasting, always tweaking. So it's not all about the numbers. But I think if, if you are somebody who likes to, I don't know, <laughs> get into percentages in terms of hydration or temperatures and timings and stuff like that, it can be a a satisfying project.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it is. I mean, I obviously know a lot less about ramen than you do, but to me, it strikes me as it is a numbers thing, but it's also a taste thing, right? And I I think that's, it's about tasting a bowl of something and knowing what it needs. And I think that that arguably is a skill.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there is always, you know, when I'm testing recipes and I think when anybody is, you'll take a slurp and another one and think it needs something. And, and then it is about what figuring out what that thing or, or those things are. This is really important because I think a lot of people make ramen at home and they think, oh, it's not very good. And I think that anybody who makes ramen when they're first starting out, including me, have had this experience. And that's when these sort of five elements really come in. You know, the, the noodles hey. are brought, the tare, the oil... And the toppings and if any one of those things is sort of out of whack if it's not right or if it's too much or too little the whole bowl sort of feels unsatisfying so like writing this book has actually sort of driven that home to me because when i first started out in particular i thought oh it's all about the broth and i think that's because of my my ramen moment going way back to 2005 or whatever when i first had that spoonful of broth and i thought oh my god this is what it's all about. So I spent a long time trying to nail the broth and kind of neglected the other elements in the bowl. And it took me a long time to figure out like, okay, no, you need to work on the tare. You need to make sure the noodles match. You need to, you know, really figure out those toppings and and what works and what doesn't and the oils and everything like that. So it comes with experience, I guess. You You know, the more you know, the better you get and the better you can troubleshoot, I suppose.
0: It makes sense with these five elements that you're talking about in regards to the way that you've structured the book. But in, in some ways, it's quite an unusual structure for a recipe book because most of the actual, what we would consider to be recipes, where it's amounts of things that are going together to make something they're for elements of of the dishes rather than the dishes themselves, which I guess is the nature of ramen. But um, yeah, I, as I was kind of reading through it, I, it did strike me as, um, yeah, kind of intriguing in a way. It was, did you know that's how you wanted to structure it the whole time?
1: I did and now i have i have a little bit of regret in terms of not putting <sighs> more recipes in there that you i can say okay here's a ramen that you can do start to finish in mm. x amount of time you know boom 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 you can do it in an hour you can do it in a day that's a purely commercial thought because i know that you know from experience and just from seeing what's out there people want recipes that they can cook regularly it's not that you can't cook ramen regularly, but it is a bit of a project. You you need a okay. sort of solid two days to put together a bowl from scratch. And, you know, I did a talk uh, at a bookshop in Bath where somebody was like, well, what can I what recipe do you recommend from the book where, you know, that I can make like every day? And I was like, uh <laughs> 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 I was like, well, you, can't. <laughs> you can't. Well, what I've been telling people now is um, all of the elements have different uses outside of a bowl of ramen, like the chashu recipes in particular. You could have those on a bowl of rice with some greens and it'd be a great meal. The oils are great for roasting vegetables or dressing salads or all kinds of different things, making mayonnaises and dressings. Uh, And then there are ones that are sort of more standalone, like there's a whole chicken ramen recipe Mm. where you sort of, you poach the chicken and that becomes your broth or your toppings and you just add noodles, basically. Uh, Or my favorite, one of my favorites, which is the leftover Nando's one, uh, leftover Nando's ramen, which sounds stupid and it is, but it was surprisingly good. Otherwise I wouldn't have put it in the book. So like, and then that kind of thing is there to show people like, you know, anything can be ramen and you can... Once you know the basics, once you have good noodles and and understand seasoning in particular, anything can become ramen and it doesn't necessarily have to be a big project. And in fact, the book's being translated into German and um, they don't have Nando's in Germany. So they're like, what do we do? And I, I what we settled on was just like, well, basically we can just tell people order any chicken from your favorite chicken shop, follow this process, season it up how you like it. And you'll have a pretty good bowl of ramen, and that's the truth, I think. So yeah, I mean if I I don't know, like I said, like I I, I want people to cook from it, and I, I I always want it to not be too too nerdy, but unfortunately that's sort of the nature of the dish. And I've been describing the book as a as a one for serious beginners. Like I don't think it's mm. it, it's not incredibly nerdy or, or detailed, not as much as it could be anyway. But having said that, like, you have to be the kind of person who really wants to. Set the time aside to make a proper bowl.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'd also just like to give kudos to the Nando's recipe for shouting out one of the underrated Nando's menu items, which is the chicken livers. The liver the I best Nando's chicken <laughs> livers. Um, Thank you. Yeah, well, what I loved about the recipes that you've included for yeah the Nando's leftovers that you've um, that you've mentioned, and also the full English ramen mm. and the uh, Wisconsin beer and cheese ramen. Yeah, um, they're just really fun. Like mm. they're, they're just like it feels very like funny to me. Um, no. And I found it quite surprising in a book that, you know, as you're saying, this isn't a book for serious nerds, but it is a book that takes ramen seriously. And I really liked that, that there was space for that element of humor like that. I kind of really appreciated that. And they seem like really great recipes. I'm excited to try them.
1: Thanks. I mean, this is sort of a, a sticking point as well. It's because there's a, there is this urge with any kind of food. And I think, you know, ramen as well, which is to sort of be protective of some kind of idea of authenticity which is a really tricky one with ramen because I, I do respect that and I, you know, I will certainly like be unsatisfied if some kind of ramen doesn't, certainly if it doesn't follow the rules, i.e. like it's made incorrectly, it doesn't have the right noodles, things like that. Or if, if people describe it as one certain kind of style and it doesn't represent that style. But all throughout ramen history, and especially now in Japan, there are variations that are based on just one individual chef's sort of idiosyncrasies and creativity. I mean, there's a pizza ramen in the book. And I I, I know people would probably look at that and they think, ah, that's not, you know, that you're just being silly. That's That's not legit. And, you know, we had this at the <laughs> restaurant, too. We did a curry goat ramen, and there's a French onion ramen in one of my other books. And I was just curious because like, when I make these things, I, 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 they're done sort of in the spirit of this sort of creativity that you get in the ramen world in Japan, um, and that is one of the things that makes it special. So I just googled it, and it turns out there is a, a French onion ramen being served <laughs> in Japan, and it, it's even got a pastry lid.
0: <laughs> Incredible! Yeah,
1: this this kind of like silliness. I, I think it's important. Like it's a seri- it's serious business ramen, <laughs> but it also allows for a lot of fun and, and creativity. I think that's I think that's part of I think part of the reason behind that is because it's always had this this status of being not quite Japanese. You know, for for decades and decades after it was introduced to in Japan, it was referred to as Chinese food as as chuka soba or Chinese mm-hmm. soba, and it still sort of holds on to that in some some cases especially among like older generations. And I think that that um, has allowed people in Japan to sort of blow it up a bit and say, well, you know, this is not our food, we're not following strict traditions here, so we can have a bit of fun with it. As long as the rules are followed anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, fun within the rules, that's kind of fun. That's (laughs) (laughs) right. I wanted to talk to you about uh, Nanban actually, because I know it's no longer running, but, I don't know. It feels like I can't talk to you about your ramen book without asking you about your ramen restaurant. What did you learn about cooking ramen in that setting?
1: Oh, God. (laughs) Um, What did I learn? Okay, so if I could sort of reframe the question a little bit, people are often asking me, are you ever going to reopen or open another one? And The answer is basically no. Um, It's just one thing I've learned is about myself, which is that I'm not really I'm not really cut out to work in a restaurant in the sense that running a restaurant or working in a restaurant is often about firefighting and solving problems as they come up. You never have a day at a restaurant or almost never where everything just goes smoothly. You're always dealing with broken equipment or staff not turning up, or, or some little minor disaster one right after the other. I think that people who work in restaurants, they kind of thrive uh, in those kinds of environments. I, I like things to be much more under control. <laughs> so if I were to ever open another one, I would try to maintain that control by having it be a much smaller venue, like what you typically find in Japan, and and having fewer staff so that i can sort of spend more time with each one of them more sort of one-on-one time talking them through the whole process and getting them to understand the dish from the ground up because the problem with having a bigger team is that you've you've sort of got one guy off in the corner chopping onions and you've got one person on the other side of the kitchen making the garlic oil or whatever and it's hard for them to see it all come together, basically. Like, mm. we tried to move people around the kitchen as much as we could at Namban, but you still end up sort of in this sort of old-school brigade system almost where one person's doing one thing on one section and one person's doing another. So that's that's hard, and that's, that's really not how ramen shops operate in Japan. Generally, you have everybody doing everything in the line so you can really... Like, there's no head chef in a ramen shop in Japan. It's just a, a few people putting a bowl together basically and, and and being involved with every part of that bowl. So keeping it small, keeping it under control, keeping the menu small as well. So that you have more focus, I guess, on, on really getting every element, right. This is what I would do if I were to do it again. And then sort of some lifestyle choices <laughs> that would be different for one thing I would love. And I don't know if this is possible with London rent, but I would love to be able to like, sell the broth until it runs out and then close up at 3 p.m., you know, like Mm. (laughs) so I can have a life as well and pick up my kids from school and stuff like that. Charge a lot for the ramen. I would love to be able to charge 20 pounds, 25 pounds for a bowl of ramen so that then you can pay the staff more so that you can buy the better ingredients. You know, there's this real expectation in the UK and in Japan. And in Japan, it's much Mm. more fair, I think. But like, People want ramen to be cheap, and I think that that's part of the appeal of the dish. But it's expensive. Making ramen is like, it's an expensive process. Like the, the noodles that we get are, you know, 75p a portion sometimes, the broth itself can cost a pound with the amount of bones that go into it. You've got the toppings and everything. And then of course the staff at the rent and it's, it's, it's not cheap. And nowadays sort of the going rate for ramen in London is probably around 15 pounds, which I think is fair, absolutely fair. But I think it actually probably should be more just to make a a more sustainable business, basically. So, yeah. Sorry, I don't know if that answers your question question
0: but um no I, I think it does answer your question I think I actually I actually misphrased the question slightly which was what have you learned from cooking ramen in that setting not what have you learned about it which I think is slightly different so I think you did actually answer the question that I meant to ask
1: right <laughs> so,
0: so that's great we both got there um okay. that, yeah that's really in that's so interesting because I think something that really yeah something that really came to me when I was reading the book was that um it seems unbelievable that a bowl of ramen could cost as like less than 20 pounds when you consider the work that goes into it so yeah I can I completely understand where you're coming from there Um, and also I I feel like ramen shops aren't really a thing that we have here right it's they're kind of an outlier like I think I mean I don't know if there's any kind of exceptions to that rule that you you know and you want to tell us about but Yeah, it's not really a a concept that a lot of people are familiar with.
1: You're right. We have ramen restaurants. Mm. You know, these places can be quite dedicated and specialized to some degree, but they all, including us, they all serve other dishes, small plates, stuff like that, which of course isn't like unheard of in Japan either. You get, you know, all kinds of standard side dishes like rice or karage stuff like that, gyoza. Um, And you even have like ramen izakaya in Japan that have fuller menus as well. But I think there's less of an emphasis generally in the UK on on specializing. Uh, and that's that's in any genre of cooking. You know, we, we don't really have dedicated yakitori places. We have very few sort of dedicated okonomiyaki places. Even sushi. I mean, people now I think have more respect for sushi and the whole omakase experience where you get sushi and you get it in a way that is the, the chef basically dictates. But yeah, beyond that people, I mean we it's funny. We we had people walk out of the restaurant because we didn't serve sushi or because we didn't serve prawn tempura, like these sort of dishes that people expect from Japanese food and they think, "Oh, you're a Japanese restaurant, you must serve it." Which I, I don't know where that comes from. Um it's it's very very different from Japan and even to some extent from America where, you know, you go to a restaurant for that one thing that they do. I think part of it is that people go out here more more to socialize than anything rather than to sit down and, and eat the food. But I don't know, that's oversimplifying it because obviously, well, ramen is different. Ramen is not a social food in Japan. You order your food, you usually go alone. If you go with a friend, you don't talk to them. <laughs> you sit down, you slurp and you leave.
0: No, I think I really think you're onto something here because I think when you um, it made me think about this, actually, when you when you introduce the full English ramen and you kind of justify writing this recipe because you make a comparison between the idea of going to a cafe and having a full English and having ramen in a ramen shop and I think I think there's actually like a real there is a real parallel there like you talk about it being quite a working class food which I think is really accurate and also like I think people would often I guess there is some element of socializing in a calf and it is a you know third space or whatever you want to call it but there is also like an element that you're going there to fuel up and like you might enjoy how it tastes but it feels quite like um I don't know what the word is but you're not going there for kind of like a, a, an elevated, I hate that word, but like a kind of rarefied dining experience. It's very like, you're there to, <laughs> to like fuel. So I guess it is comparable.
1: Get the protein and get the fat and get the carbs in.
0: And get out. And get
1: out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a cab is probably a friendlier place to linger than most ramen shops. But, and that's an important point too, is is these, because there's a, there's a contingent in, in the ramen scene that sort of wants to elevate. It wants to make everything a little bit more refined. And I have respect for that. But it, like in the case of a full English, that doesn't necessarily make the dish better. Like, sometimes the best ramen is the sloppiest, most, like, <laughs> thrown-together thing. Like, I, I, I mentioned ramen-jito in the book, which, which does have, of course, a, a certain process that goes into it in and in a, in a certain amount of thought. But it is also, like, ramen-jito is one of the most chaotic, dirty ramen chops I've ever seen. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Like, you go in there, and I'll never forget this. The chef, the master, he's in there dipping his hands into boiling noodle water to check if the noodles are done with his fingertips. And he's got a Band-Aid on one of them. And it's like, and, and there's another guy stirring the broth with a big wooden beam. It looks like a fence post. And, like, there's, there's grease <laughs> all over the walls. And you just go in there, and, and you think, man, this is not... But but it, it, then it comes down to taste, and it's about like it's about experience, and and I guess a certain kind of technique. It's it's not about like dialing in individual elements and making sure that everything is just right. It's about sort of adjusting on the fly, and and it's about filling you up cheaply. It's and and that to me is as important, if not a more important sort of aspect or or part of of ramen culture is this sort of like you know here's something that is made to a certain level of care, <laughs> but also just meant to sort of like put meat on your bones and fill you up cheaply without being at all pretentious or precise, basically. Mm. And I, I really do think that that is sort of a, a, an important part of ramen culture I want people to understand. Because the original ramen, at least if you read sort of the history books on it, uh, like Slurp by Barrett Kushner is my favorite, he describes one of the original sort of proto ramen, champon, as a dish of scraps, like literally like, mm. and, and it still is in a lot of ways. It's it's bones and like not prime cuts of pork and wheat flour. Like it, it, it's a cheap, simple, humble dish made from nothing special. I think if you can get that, if you can if you can start with not anything special ingredients that make a great bowl of ramen, then. You're a pro. (laughs) You've got all my respect, basically. (laughs) If you start with great ingredients and make a great bowl of ramen, it's like, eh, (laughs) who cares? (laughs) Anybody could do it.
0: Something from nothing. That's what we want. I I wanted to ask you about um, kind of that idea of being an expert. Um, It's (laughs) something I I sort of think about a lot when it comes to, I guess, the voices we hear in the food world. And... Japanese food I feel like in this country there are obviously people who have been writing about it for a long time but there isn't kind of a a big breadth and wealth of voices it's kind of a few people and I wonder how you feel about being seen as this expert voice particularly as somebody who's not Japanese.
1: Yeah I don't know um I um for one thing it's all relative and if You're the guy in the room who knows the most about something or more than anybody else. Rather, they're going to call you the expert, whether or not you feel that yourself. And they're going to be looking to you for answers. And I accept that. Like if I if if people come to me and they say we would like to know about Japanese food to some degree, whether it's in the form of a book or doing the radio or or whatever, I'll say, okay, uh, here's what I know. Here's my opinions on it. Here's what I've learned. But you're absolutely right that I can't be the only one, and I can't be, I, I can't be the first stop. Basically, um, mm-hmm. I think you've got to find the right person for the right job. So I'll, I'll give you an example where I, I didn't do that, or, or I did not follow that rule. That's my vegan book. I, I, that's the book I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have written. I did my best. They asked me, "Can you do a vegan book?" And I said, "Okay, I know, I know some things about that." But really, that's a whole other <laughs> tradition in Japan. And I, I mentioned it in the book, there's shojin yori, which is this Buddhist vegetarian tradition. Um, and I said, I basically say in the book, like, I don't know enough about this to write about it. So here's a bunch of other dishes I can write about. <laughs> Whereas in retrospect, it's, it, I probably should have passed on that one and said, I'm not your expert here. I, I can do ramen. I can do easy Japanese home cooking. I can do izakaya food. But there's somebody else out there who is going to be able to explain this better. So I guess that's sort of the thing is you've got to find the right expert for the right topic. And when it comes to Japanese food and I, you know, any, any kind of food, really, there is so much within that food. It's not just one thing. There are individual dishes. There are subgenres. Um, there's historical recipes. There's sort of modern fine dining. There's all these different elements to all these different foods. And so it's about sort of, I think, uh, knowing, figuring out what your wheelhouse is and then staying within that to some degree. Then it, it's a two-way street. It's like, uh, you know, people have to, when they're looking for expertise, they have to find the right person just as much as people who are in that position have to say yes or no, basically. And one thing I would I, I would like to see more of are, and this is, a, again, a situation where it's sort of a two-way street, I'd like to see more interest in regional Japanese food and then finding the right person to talk about that. I did a book on Tokyo as well, Tokyo Local Foods. And then the topic came up at the publisher. It's like, okay, well, what about Kyoto? What about Osaka? What about Okinawa? All these other kind of regions. Like, yeah, absolutely. Somebody should do these books, but not me. And also... Mm. The demand has to be there. That's a commercial consideration. But like, you know, would a book on on Kyoto food sell? I don't. I don't know. But if it does, then absolutely it should be done, and and it should be somebody who really knows that cuisine well to do it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and this is all very much tied in with the commercial aspect of it. it kind of when you frame it in that way, it feels strange that the people who have the most power in which voices are heard in food, the people who are trying to sell something, which obviously, like, in the society we live in, makes a lot of sense. It's it's the way that we live. But... It's also like, quite. it's quite fucked up <laughs> and yeah. And you know, I appreciate you sharing that about the, the vegan book. I think that's really interesting to have had that reflection that actually, you know outside of the moment that you agreed to do it um, maybe somebody else could have written it. But it's also, I respect that it's really hard to say no to those things. Well,
1: that's it. I mean, this is now my livelihood, this is my career. And so like any sort of basically freelancer it's hard to turn down work although now, luckily, some of the books are paying royalties, so I have a little bit more financial Mm -hmm. freedom to say no to things, basically. And and we've had conversations with the publisher, and we're we're, to be honest, we're a little bit stuck right now because, you know, finding that thing in the Venn diagram where it's something that they want, something that Mm -hmm. readers want, and something that I want and also can do, that's becoming (laughs) harder and harder to pin down. So, you know, I could write about Japanese food, forever because that's the the nature of the subject it just it goes on forever but it would require more research sort of on the ground in japan i'm limited by living here
0: (laughs) we all are limited by living here
1: (laughs) (laughs) tell me about it so (laughs) it's it's yeah it's a tricky one and you know i'm at the point now where we what i would love to do is sort of do what otolengi has started doing with these co-authored books. And I don't know exactly what sort of form that would take, if it would ever take form. But like, because I love writing the books, and I love the sort of learning and research that goes into them. But it'd be great to sort of collaborate with people on specialist subjects who 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 know more than I do, basically, and, and get them get their perspective and their their voices. Sometimes I think, to be completely honest, it's like, well, I've done the writing, I and I've enjoyed it, and I I, I still enjoy it. But at this point, it's almost like, well, I I want to be the commissioning editor now. <laughs> I, I want to start finding other people who I think are interesting and, and could write interesting things about Japanese food and putting them out there. Because I want to see their books, you know, and um, I don't have that power other than recommending people, I suppose.
0: This is, I love this. I mean, you could do this, Tim. I believe that, you know, an independent publishing house that... <laughs> Publishers. But was it, yeah, I mean, to come back to what you said about the Ottolenghi model, I think that's such a good point. Um, and it is such, I think that's such an interesting and u- valuable use of a platform that he has to really bring people in. And I think it was something that he maybe didn't always do and has definitely made more effort to um, give people the credit they deserve in in this way. And I think that's that would be a really interesting avenue right. for you to go down. Um, and I personally would love to see it.
1: Tell my publisher, <laughs> I don't know.
0: (laughs) I'll tag them in those. (laughs) It is so difficult because there are so many people with fantastic ideas and but yeah it's about the market at the end of the day and, and that's the trouble is that people buy books from things they know about already I guess.
1: There are an awful lot of Japanese cookbooks that are basically kind of the same book which are classic simple home cooking books. I honestly, I love those kinds of books. I really do. And I think the thing is you can um, you can have both. You can have the sort of simple, easy recipes, accessible recipes that are also sort of more specific to different regions or subcultures of, of Japan. I'm working on a book about Hokkaido food right now, which is sort of a lifelong dream project. And there's a lot of stuff that I, I can't really put in the book because it's, it's sort of too difficult even for me in terms of technique or sourcing ingredients in particular. But there's also plenty of stuff that is super simple and delicious and that uses ingredients that are really widely available. I almost think of it as you could do it almost like a Trojan horse. You can write a book that says on the cover like easy Japanese comfort food or whatever and have the book be like half that and then have that other half be like, a bunch of weird shit, <laughs> not weird shit, but you know what I mean? Like here's a bunch of stuff maybe people don't know about and and get them to uh, expand their Japanese food horizons almost in a sneaky way.
0: <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think there's something in that. I just interviewed Clarissa Wei, who has a book out called Made in Taiwan. And um, she basically was like, none of these recipes are easy. Like you need to understand this is not like an everyday cookbook that people are going to use every night. This is a process of documentation, like this is saving these recipes. I mean, obviously, politically, Taiwan is in a very different position to japan, and and that's kind of was some of the motivation for writing the book was that if we don't write these recipes down now and speak to these people about what they cook, we might never have the chance again, which is obviously a there's a lot more impetus there. But you know I It's it made me really think about the idea of what a recipe means, because I think I've been guilty in the past of writing off the recipe book as kind of quite a cozy, um, you know, thing. And I love recipe books. I have many. (laughs) But I think I've really come to understand its power as like a political tool. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, there you go.
1: (laughs) That is a a interesting thing you're bringing up, actually, because part of the challenge of writing the book about Hokkaido is addressing Ainu food. Ainu are this indigenous group in Hokkaido and also live in the Kuril Islands in Sakhalin. And they were basically, their culture was almost wiped out by the Japanese imperial government in the late 19th century, but now it's having this cultural revival. And even talking about that story as an outsider to the culture, feels like almost something I don't want to touch it has to be talked about but like it, it, it doesn't feel like it's my place to criticize or politicize so this is something I'm like just being trying to be very mindful of at the moment mm. um, while also realizing that this is a, a this will be an introduction to this food culture that a lot of people don't know about so like it, it is tricky and I think that what I'm trying to do like what I've sort of uh uh my strategy that I've landed on is uh is not be overtly political not sort of give my two cents in the book too much but just in talking about it you are sort of making a statement mm. whether or not people sort of receive that statement or not I guess is up to the reader and, and how strongly I sort of convey it but like the story has to be told i suppose and and that in itself is kind of political this is the thing my my job is really like i consider myself sort of a professional enthusiast my job is to sort of like say hey look at all this great stuff look, look at look at what we can learn from japan because it's it's brought me a lot of joy and understanding not to say ooh, no 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 bad things here <laughs> you know that that feels hypocritical in a way and, and just not my place. But on the other hand, like you can't avoid it sometimes. So it's tricky. It's really tricky. The, the sort of main tension in the book, I guess, is, and, and I think this is a tension in ramen, making ramen generally, is the sort of the balance between doing something uh, properly and sort of by the books and nailing the basics and also making it your own. Because I think that this is not just about ramen. This is about Japanese food generally, because I think that every type of Japanese food has that, has both those things within it. And I've talked in the book and, and elsewhere about how noodle cultures like udon and soba don't see as many regional variations and and as many sort of creative takes on it in Japan. But that's less and less true. And and I think that nowadays when I go to Japan, I go to udon shops or soba shops, I'm amazed at actually what chefs are doing with it. I had an udon moment in Shinjuku several years ago where they made a kind of a carbonara udon, I don't think they invented or anything like that, but it was basically like hot udon served with a little bit of suyu topped with butter, cheese. And a slab of tempura bacon. And I was just like, I didn't know Udon could be this. And and but they'd also obviously they knew what they were doing in terms of making the noodles and, and the 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 fundamentals. And I think that, you know, when people talk about what you can or can't do with food, especially if it's not your culture's food, there's not that many limits in terms of like if you want to go crazy with toppings or or creative takes on something. You know, I already mentioned the Pizza ramen, which exists in Japan, or or curry ramen, or all these different things, French onion ramen, whatever. But if you haven't sort of respected the basics and got the, the fundamental understanding right, then you can't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to say can't, mm-hmm. but like, and not just because it's sort of disrespectful, but also because it just won't be good. Like you have to sort of, and also you gotta you got to eat. You got to eat as much ramen as you can to sort of understand it. You really do. It, it's not just about the making and understanding the process. It's about understanding the sort of sensory impact, I guess, and how the noodles feel mm. when you chew them and how the hot lard on top works and, and all this stuff. It, it, it really is like when you have a bowl of ramen and it, it doesn't work or or when it does, rather, that is one of the hardest things to describe because it's about so many different things sort of coming together. And understanding, I guess, the fundamentals will help you understand what makes that alchemy happen, I guess. That's what I want to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it's a very fun dish to play around with. But, you know, do your homework. <laughs> That's all.
0: <laughs> Lekker is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my guest, Tim Anderson. Rama Forever is out now published by Hardy Grant. As part of this monthly Lekka book club, I'll be writing about the book over on the Lekka Substack and Patreon. Have you been cooking from it too? Come and chat about your favourite recipes in the comments or tag me on Instagram when you post any dishes you've made from it. I'd love to see them. And before I go, I'd like to remind you that you can also sign up as a paid subscriber to support Lekka on Apple Podcasts, Patreon and also now on Substack as well. Links will be in the show notes. There's a series that's running at the moment, very slowly, thank you for your patience, about food packaging called Out of the Box, so subscribe to get full access to that. And to any paid subscribers who are listening here, anyone who's subscribed recently, thank you so much for your continued support, it's much appreciated. Music in the episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks very much for listening.